Welcome. My name is Nathan Illman, and this is Beneath the Armour podcast, the place where healthcare professionals talk about what it's like to be them in this challenging field, and a place where listeners can come to feel connection through shared experience. Welcome to episode one of Beneath the Armour podcast. I'm really excited to be able to bring you this episode. It's been several months in the making. I've had numerous different conversations with people that I've been wanting to get on the show and it's finally culminated in a project that I'm really, really pleased about and really proud of. My guest today is Amanda Thompson. Amanda is a speech and language therapist in the UK and she's a team lead for a countywide autism service. So in this conversation we get into Amanda's journey professionally from where she came from We actually studied psychology together as our undergraduate degree, so she pivoted after this and went into speech and language therapy, and it's really interesting to hear about her experiences that shaped her professional development and her personal journey as well. We talk about some of the stresses of the role, and Amanda talks about her amazing resilience and ability to reframe her experiences to remain positive. There's lots of great insights and wisdom from Amanda in this conversation and I hope it's helpful and informative for speech and language therapists but other healthcare professionals as well, perhaps people working in the field of autism and developmental disabilities but I'm sure there's stuff in there which will resonate with many, many people as well. So without further ado, I bring you Amanda Thompson. Amanda, welcome to episode number one of Beneath the Armour podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to come on. It's um, quite exciting being episode number one. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. How, how do you feel about being the first guest? Um, Honoured. No. <laughs> excited. No, I'm excited. I've never done anything like this before, so yeah. it's good. Well, it's a new yeah. experience for me as well, obviously, so let's have some fun. Yeah, yeah it'll be good. So to kick things off, um, as we were just saying, so you and I know each other from quite a long time. So we went Mm. to uni together, did our undergrad in psychology at Leeds University in the UK and graduated about 12 years ago or something. But we took quite Mm -hmm. different paths, didn't we? Yeah. So it's all right to just start by talking about, yeah, your, your kind of professional journey that happened after that from, you know, 21 onwards. Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, like you say, I did psychology at uni. Um, I didn't really, to be honest with you, have a clue what I wanted to do after. Um, I kind of like the idea of being a psychologist, but, um, yeah, I didn't really know. I did a bit of traveling. I went to India from uni and I volunteered in a psychiatric hospital in India which was um, an, an experience. Um, and I think that actually, you know, really shaped sort of where I went from there because um, I'd had some kind of experiences um, with people with autism before that. But then when I went to India, they, there were a lot of people with autism in psychiatric facilities, which was quite an eye-opener for me. Um, but I really, really enjoyed it there. It was amazing. Um, after that, I got a job in an autism school um, because, again, I just sort of, I found it interesting and I just stuck with that. 
and then I went to work for the National Statistics Society for a couple of years um, in more of like a it's difficult to explain. I think my job title was like a practitioner, which doesn't mean anything really, but it's, it was kind of like a, like a support worker, I guess, a glorified support worker. Um, but I had like more sort of communication-based training. So like a lot of the adults, they were all adults with autism. It was the biggest adult day centre for autism in London. So it was huge. Um and they had a lot of communication needs. So they started to train me in that. And then I was like, oh, so this is quite interesting. Um, maybe I need to make this official and get some qualifications in this, which then led me to go to UCL, uh, which is University College London, to do my master's in speech and language science. So I did that for two years. And yeah, that was, that was tough, actually, but I got through it just about. And then I, what did I do? I've actually made a list because I can't even remember what I've done myself. <laughs> <laughs> My memory's terrible as well for, you know, these, these kind of details of exactly when things happened. Yeah, I've also had like a lot of jobs, which I realised when I wrote all this down, because I started in the NHS. So because of my previous experience, I went, I was thrown in the deep end massively. So I went straight in the ASD and complex needs team, which for a newly qualified therapist is a bit unnerving because you're just literally thrown out into the big wide world and expected to know what you're talking about which is not the case at all like you really don't have a clue what you're talking about um I did that for a year the only reason I left wasn't because I I loved working in the NHS but the commute was insane I was doing a ridiculous commute at the time so then I worked at a more local autism school then I worked in a speech and language school which is run by a speech and language charity which was great for me as a speech and language therapist because it made me really um you know I had to really upskill myself um because it's like a flagship speech and language school for the UK and then I I wanted to specialize in autism and I always that was always my interest so then I became head of therapy in autism school and now (laughs) finally (laughs) um recently actually only in uh two months ago maybe yeah, two months ago, um, I went to work for a county-wide speech and language th- therapy service, and I'm now their clinical lead for um, complex social communication needs, which is basically autism, <laughs> or people that don't have an autism diagnosis but should or maybe one day will. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so you've had, you've had quite, quite a few different roles, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And um, I think for me, I've always kind of known what I wanted to do. So every decision I've made has been, okay, how do I get one step closer to that? I've always wanted to be a specialist in autism. That's always been my interest. And while I have known as a speech and language therapist, I need to have skills in other areas. So speech and language therapy is such a broad profession. And I don't think people really understand how broad it is because the the job title is quite misleading. A lot of, like when I say to people who I am, they think, oh, you deal with a lisp. I'm like, no, I've never <laughs> worked with anyone with a lisp in my life. Or, oh, you know, they think you work with people that stammer. And yeah, some people do. Of course, that's a specialism within speech and language therapy, but it's such a broad title. And um, actually, I very rarely do any speech work. 
um, I had to train to do speech work and I have to keep up my professional knowledge in speech because it's mm-hmm. with it we're the only professionals that really understand it fully in my opinion anyway um but when you specialize in autism like as you probably know 30 percent of autistic people never speak so you don't really do much speech work <laughs> and yeah. it's actually rare that someone with autism has a speech sound disorder it's more mm-hmm. common that they don't have the underlying language if that makes sense. So you would never work on speech unless they had the vocabulary to work on speech. Mm -hmm. So the job title can be quite misleading. Um, But I would say my, in my day-to-day life, I do, I would probably rather be called like a communication therapist or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm Because I'm more, my my job is more based on developing functional communication than anything else. Yeah. And I, so I guess for people listening who don't really have much idea of what a speech and language mm. therapist does, and you've kind of just, you know, explained that anyway, that it's actually quite a misleading yeah. title. Can you just like maybe yeah. walk us through what a typical mm. day looks like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So again, like the speech and language therapy is such a broad profession. So you can, for example, specialize in like swallowing disorders. There's a whole field where, you know, some people that's their only experience of speech and language therapy. You know, they've had a, a grandparent that's had a stroke and they're like, oh, you know, the speech and language therapist helped them to eat again. And because this, the anatomy for speech is the same as the anatomy for swallow. So we're trained in that anatomy. So if you can understand one, you can understand the other. They're the same thing. Um, People are always shocked, not always, but some people are always shocked when I say that. And I'm like, well, try and swallow and speak at the same time. It's physically impossible. <laughs> uh, I think um, I've, I've tried that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite a, few, quite a few people don't believe me when I say it. I'm like, no, I do, I do, like, no. Um, yeah. it's, it's quite funny. But um, so for me, because obviously, especially as an autism, it is different. So the children I see... Um, it's the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum of autism. So um, if people aren't familiar with that, what that actually means, I'm talking from kind of nonverbal or preverbal children. I, I'm, I work in pediatrics. So although I do have some, um, what we in the UK we call sixth formers. So they're like 18, 19 on my caseload, but I primarily work in pediatrics. Um, so you've got from the whole spectrum from sort of a nonverbal, preverbal, even like pre-interaction child mm-hmm. to quite a high functioning, what used to be called Asperger's syndrome, but is now not called that anymore. They've removed that from the DSM. But um, yeah, those those children that, you know, they can use language to communicate. They sometimes can talk at sentence level, even conversation level, but they've got significant social communication difficulties so in that vein my role is really really broad even within that specialism because I can go from one minute training a child how to communicate through basic symbols or through objects of reference to supporting a child to navigate a complex breakdown in a friendship you know it's like a really really broad profession Um, and I also get quite heavily involved with things like emotional regulation because there's such an overlap between 
communication, behavior, and emotional regulation, the thing is so intertwined. Mm. So um, I've actually, the last few years, really um, got into that more. And um, it's also meant that I've had to understand things like sensory processing, um, how the you know, emotion centers in the brain work and also how that can break down for some people with autism and how that then impacts communication because the vast majority of children or people with autism have significant difficulties communicating how they feel, which has a huge impact across their whole lives. And in some, in, for some uh, people, it is the underlying issue cause for all their problems because they just have got crushing anxiety Hmm. um and because they can't manage that they can't socialize so it's all intertwined as far as i'm concerned so yeah um it it's a very very broad my my day-to-day life can be really really varying which i love actually i love that um i love that i can kind of go into an autism school and on the whole offer some kind of support um, you know, it might not be, I might not have the very, very specific thing that they need in that moment, but I can usually offer something to help. So that's good. Yeah. And it, it was a very broad skill set to be able to do that. I think, um, you know, I know that from my work as well, having lots of variety is really, um, mm. really exciting. It keeps things fresh and it's, um, it's really rewarding, isn't it? When you, when you can do lots of different, uh, different things. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, um, because I'm so interested in it, and I think that's what some people um, eh, not forget, but kind of, for me, this isn't um, just a job, like I genuinely find it fascinating. So if there's a gap in my knowledge, and I've identified, oh, I don't really know enough about that, I will go and find out. Um, And I might not be able to find out. So I'll book myself on a course or something. So I'm quite I'm constantly open to learning. Um I love working with other professionals. Um I love OTs, occupational therapists. I think they're the best thing ever. I work with I've worked with those loads because their their understanding of uh yeah, sensory processing and self-regulation is way, way more than mine. Um psychologists, although in the UK it's rare to be honest, to have that time with psychologists. Um but yeah, and obviously teachers, I work really, really closely with teachers and, and quite specialist teachers as well that often have a, a whole skill set that I don't as well. So mm. but yeah, I love to learn. Yeah, I, I think there's never a point where you should stop learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of, um, yeah, identifying gaps in my own learning. It's mm. once, Especially like you said, once you find something really meaningful and um you just you absolutely love the topic you 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 know you Mm. find purpose with that it's it's a lot Mm. easier to sort of keep yourself engaged in learning isn't it yeah Um, definitely so so something i'm interested in so you mentioned um so that sort of experience when you're in in um, india in the psychiatric hospital Mm. working with um some people with autism there and after that kind of realizing that you you did actually want to work um with asd I'm interested. So, you know, you, you sound like you had quite a clear vision of of where you wanted to work. And now obviously you've kind of, um, you've been successful, I suppose, objectively in your career and that sort of thing. Were there any role models or people that you had identified that you kind of looked up to who worked in the field or I don't know, maybe even people um, in the autistic community that, 
you'd sort of mm. um, seen and that inspired you? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think for me, it's a it's weird because there was never kind of a set person that I thought, oh my God, that's who I want to be. But I was kind of exposed to this, if you like, field um, from a young age because my, my parents fostered children and a lot of the children they fostered had learning needs. Ah. So when I was kind of, I, I want to say 13, but that might be wrong. That's when they started to foster. And I suppose that's the sort of age where you're starting to think, oh, what do I want to do at GCSE or like when I want to get older? And I think that had an impact on me for sure, because I think when you go to kind of a mainstream school, obviously there are children there with learning needs, but unless you spend a lot of time with them, you don't really know like mm. what they're much about them. And I suppose when you're a child yourself, you're quite selfish, right? So you, unless you're exposed to that, you're not going to go looking for it. So I think that for me was um, a, an eye opener and I found it really interesting. And um, I think that maybe shaped sort of pushed me into the direction of psychology in the first place maybe mm-hmm. but in terms of how I had I decided autism I I can't I think working with autistic children so I think yeah my experience in India which was um I, I didn't really fully understand what autism was when I went to India um, and obviously most of the people there speak a different language. So um, although some of the adults in the psychiatric hospital was displaying what to me now is really, really obvious autistic behaviours. Um, I, I don't really like the term autistic behaviours, but you know what I mean by that. Like behaviours you would really associate with autism. Um, they um, they were doing it in another language. So I, I was a bit kind of, oh, I'd you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what to do with this or how to help or anything. But I think when I got back to the UK and I got a job in an autism school, I just absolutely loved working with the people. I just think they're amazing. And um, they're just so kind of uninhibited in a way that like typically developing people I think we're so in our heads and we're so wrapped up in worrying about what people think of us and um Mm. so I'm I guess in that way I'm I'm really kind of pro neurodiversity and that I I genuinely love autistic people like I think they're amazing and I I I want to help them to achieve what they want to achieve so if their goal is to have a friend, I want to help them do that. If their goal is to have a job, I want to help them do that. If their goal is to um, run around the playground and that's all they want to do, then fine, that's fine by me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not there to police them or change that. I'm, I, just, um, I just really enjoy working with children and I just, there's something so refreshing about it. Um, they're funny. They make me laugh. I never have a boring day at work. And for me, it's a privilege to like get paid to like therapy. The therapy that I do is literally, I get paid to play with children and (laughs) we just have a a great time. (laughs) Like it's, it's, why would you not want to do that? I can't understand why you would not want to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's fab. So, um, 
and I think just from working with those people I was like oh that's an unusual kind of way to speak or you know I wonder why they're repeating those phrases over and over again or you know why is he banging his head or you know whatever it was and I I wanted to know why Mm -hmm. and I think that's why I got more and more interested and I wanted to more training and which eventually led me to go and do my master's because I wanted to be the professional that could help them not the because I have massive respect for support workers and teaching assistants and I think they do an amazing job but they're always the ones being told what to do by professionals and I've been on that side of it you know I've been where I've worked with someone and someone comes in for an hour and they're like oh you need to do this and you're like but I don't think that's going to work Mm -hmm. so I've I always come at it from a because I've been there, I've been the sport worker, I've been the teaching assistant, I've worked up, if you like, through the chains, I've done all of those sorts of jobs. So when I go in there and I'm giving someone advice, I'm always, I'm always trying to empower that person. You know, you know this child more than I do. Mm. I can offer you support and advice, but you aren't the expert in this child. So let's sit and let's talk and figure this out together because I've been on the other side where you feel you can feel quite powerless and like, I don't know. It's, I suppose that drove me as well to kind of improve that um, experience. And also I think the outcomes for the autistic people is very dependent on that because when professionals aren't working well together, which is really, really common, I think Mm -hmm. who's losing out at the end of the day. It's, it's not the professionals. It's the, it's the children or the young people. So mm. yeah, I'm kind of motivated by lots of different reasons, but yeah. So it's that um, early experience you had. It's, it's really interesting. You know, I suppose it's no wonder that um, with your parents fostering those children, it's, yeah. it's given you some exposure to, because I, I guess, you know, yeah. I know, know from my own personal work and working with people with autism yeah. is um, often they're kind of hidden in society Mm. people don't get to see these wonderful people um and having a kind of exposure can you know obviously as as it has with you kind of drive you to want Mm. to be able to make a difference um you mentioned about the team working that's something i'd like to circle back to uh, um Mm. in a little bit is the kind of um relational component of working in a team Mm. with like ot's and uh, psychologists and how you manage that but um Mm. i'm curious um I know it can be quite challenging sometimes working in, in this area. Um, mm. I'm just wondering if you'd be willing just to share some um, experiences you might have had along your journey that were quite challenging or, you know, they, they led to quite, you know, quite a big learning for you. Um, I'm sure yeah. you've had some. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, where to start? I mean, the whole... I I sort of look back at um, my whole kind of, not just work, but education as well. Like for me, nothing was ever just straightforward or easy. So like even going back to school before I went to uni, you know, I went to a really, really terrible secondary school. So I think early, early on, really early on, I had to learn how to self-motivate, how to essentially self-teach. Like it sounds ridiculous. But um, so my sort of comprehensive secondary school was so bad that it um, failed its Ofsted in my GCSE year, was closed down and then merged with the 
next door school and then there were like riots and stuff like it was really really not a good experience so for me from then kind of um just everything feels like a challenge like as in just getting my GCSEs was a challenge getting my A-levels was a challenge getting into the uni I wanted to go to getting my degree and then being broke for years and years and years and I think all of those things just shaped me as a person so I think I'm actually now when I'm faced with challenges in work I can put it in perspective if that makes sense so I'm not I I think I consider myself fairly resilient because I can go into a meeting and someone says something to me that I don't know maybe five years ago would have floored me now I can kind of just take a deep breath and go they that is coming from this place you know that's coming from their angle and their perspective and I can I can put things in perspective a lot more and I think all those experiences have shaped that so I can't think of like a specific example but I think just constantly as I've got more into sort of a managerial role um we're constantly asked as speech and language therapists to kind of almost evidence what the outcomes are if that makes sense so I work within the public sector so it's using public money so it's taxpayers money so essentially within that comes a responsibility to for cost effectiveness as well as service outcomes so you've got almost a double-edged sword of um, having to achieve really high results with minimum cost as possible which, as you know, is not always very easy. Um, And that is a constant challenge in terms of having to go, look how amazing we are as a profession, look what we're adding, look at these outcomes. Um, Whilst, I don't want to use the word cutting corners, but essentially trimming, trimming it down to the most efficient service you can possibly run in terms of meeting those needs does that make sense or am I kind of waffling a little bit? Cause I'm not sure if I've, the terminology I'm using, I don't know if it makes total sense to me. Um, so in t- I, I suppose, I don't know if I've answered your question, but like in terms of specific challenges, I feel like it's a bit of a constant challenge <laughs> in right. the, you, I, I don't want to use the word fight, but I feel like it's a constant sort of low grade kind of, battle to just keep our head above water as a as a profession in this in this day you know and I I am nervous about what's about to come because we are in recession and Mm. last time we were in recession the service as a as a profession we were cut back massively like massively because one of the issues with speech and language therapy is that um we're seen as a a sort of a best practice profession in terms of like oh ideally speech and language therapists need to be involved but we're not as, as if you like essential so we're not saving lives <laughs> if you know so you can say oh we need a nurse we need a doctor mm-hmm. but do we need a speech and language therapist are they gonna add anything or could we train the teacher to do that or could we um i don't know outsource this you know there's always those questions all the time so mm-hmm you kind of become quite thick-skinned and also quite skilled at self-promotion, if that makes sense. So you have to be able to go into a room full of 
a lot of people that have no clue what you do and sell it sell what you can do and then do it and then achieve the outcome and it be amazing and do do that you know whilst being in budget (laughs) yeah it's really not easy and I think a lot of people maybe don't see that side of it which you don't you're not necessarily having to deal with if you're not in management but it's a big part of my job now like that whole side of it because I have to lay out all the provision pathways um, and basically say a standard what service children should and shouldn't be getting. So it's a, it's a big kind of, it's a big challenge. Yeah. It's a big challenge. It sounds like in your, um, I guess the challenges have probably varied over the years and when you've had mm. some more junior roles, more senior roles, you know, what you're just mentioning there, there's, there's kind of, um, broader kind of organizational and issues that are related to mm. you know the sort of um the economy and funding those, those sorts of things which mm. i suppose whilst they do affect more junior staff you're the one who's you know you're having to make decisions about um mm. f- that funding and that sort of thing um so i what i was going to ask you was um you know you're quite confident it sounds like with a lot of the, the, the aspects of your role, which and it, it sounds like it's because you, you've had lots of challenges. You've worked through things. You, mm. know, you mentioned that you're quite resilient because of that. Mm. What, like I know my, for myself, I've developed a lot of confidence in different areas, but there are still things that I feel oh, yeah. very like, you know, I fear basically mm. I feel anxious about. Yeah. And I think mm. other people, maybe some of my other colleagues sometimes might think that I look confident and actually inside I'm sort of you know my heart's oh, yeah. racing what what, what yeah. are some of the things that you to this day now still you know you're either working on or that kind of scare you or you you feel anxious about um well for me I suppose managing people I've I actually find really hard because I'm um I don't know I don't know if it's because I'm from quite a working class background so I kind of want everyone to be my friend just sort of it's that whole balance isn't it it's that whole um I want um I don't know I don't want to be the kind of boss that people don't feel that they can talk to I want to be really open I want to be open-minded but also where is that boundary of doing that but then holding other people to account so it's such a fine line it's such a fine line and I think I see it so often in my profession but not just my profession like with loads of other people I know that work in different fields and some people get promoted because they have the academic skills and they're really really knowledgeable in their field but then they don't have the management skills or some people get promoted because they've got the people skills and the management managerial skills but don't have the other side and Mm. for me I'm very very conscious that I just want to have both and I think um that that line management doesn't isn't something that comes so naturally to me in terms of I'm quite I'm quite comfortable sort of having a conversation with people about what's going really, really well. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> yeah. but then I'm always the one that I suppose has to be the, the bearer of bad news as well. And that for me isn't easy. You know, I, some people don't mind it or at least 
if if not you know I don't think anyone enjoys it or if they do maybe you know they've got issues of their own but um I find that tough you know I I I remember what it was like to to be them and in their shoes and Mm. how I I think a lot of people in this kind of profession they cling on to the criticism and they may get like 10 compliments and one criticism and they'll only remember the criticism and I'm like that personally so I'm always really really mindful of what I say to people um, and how I phrase things and I, d- I want to empower people to improve I, I never want to kind of knock anyone back and it would be my absolute I would hate it if I said something that made someone leave not just the workplace but the profession because it does happen it does happen because it's tough it's tough out there you know and I know quite a few people that have left the profession because they just can't handle it so for me that's a big responsibility and it's something I'm still very much working on and trying to develop and um and probably will be for a long time because every time you have a new team you have different challenges and particularly managing people in the pandemic was something else because you've got people that are shielding because they've got health issues and people that are really, really anxious and people that um, just want to get on with it and go back to work and what's all the fuss about. And you've got every, everyone (laughs) has a different experience and you're having to basically make, if you like blanket rules that meet everyone's needs and it is impossible. So it's that is definitely something I I'm keen to develop mm-hmm. in terms of like clinical stuff. God, there's loads of things I'm not strong at. I mean, I'm not in, in terms of speech and language therapy, as I say, it's such a broad profession. If I'm faced with a child that I think is having some eating and drinking difficulties, like I can say, Oh, I think they've got, I think they need to see a, a dysphagia specialist but I'm not skilled to deal with that on my own if that makes sense so I'm um but that's okay as in I think I think as professionals we need to be okay with saying I don't know and it's the ones that say I don't know that get themselves into a world of trouble because you end up making recommendations that kind of change a child's life based on you think you remember something from uni like that for me is not good enough so if I'm like I don't know that I will say I don't know that however I know someone that does Mm -hmm. or I will go and find that out for you um and I'm quite happy to say that and that is something that I've had to learn because I think especially when you're young and starting out you want to know everything right you want to absolutely (laughs) trying to prove you're trying to prove yourself so yeah I think that I think that's really important and actually I respect professionals that do that more like if I went to see a doctor and he didn't know I'd rather him say I don't know but I will find out and I will call you and I'd be like great thanks I appreciate your honesty because Mm. like don't google it for two seconds get it wrong and then send me home with the wrong prescription you know (laughs) just (laughs) just be honest like it's not you're not a robot you can't remember everything no one no one is you're human yeah we're human beings that's so true isn't it i think that that is the honesty isn't it i think honesty gets undervalued and people forget Mm. that actually 
you know, we, we forget that when people are honest with us, how much we value it and then kind of forget, yeah. oh, actually, well, if, if we're honest with other people, they're going to value it as well. Um, yeah, so, I like, really think so. Like that. I really think so. And I think if more people are honest in this world, it, the world will be a better place because I think like everyone goes around pretending they know more than they do. And it makes people feel worthless or like they can't achieve things or that they're never going to be good enough. And it's like, if everyone was just like, do you know what? I have a clue what I'm doing <laughs> some days. Yeah. Then more people would be like, oh, okay. It's not just me. Um, and, you know, people that are top, top, top of their field in certain things, of course there's areas they don't know about. It's why as you get more senior, you get more specialist, Right it's not the other way around you start off having a really general knowledge base and it gets more and more narrower which for me is why for example i don't know say you had a really specific medical need you'd want to see the consultant in that area wouldn't you Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't expect that consultant in i don't know cardiology to be an expert in um i don't know neuroanatomy would you so it's the same it's the same in any other profession and I think we need to just give ourselves a break like we're specialists in our area we're specialists in that area for a reason and if you don't know you don't know it's fine yeah it takes it takes a lot of courage I think as well to to say that especially in front of a room full of people who when they're all looking at you and they're expecting an answer and then to actually say I don't know but um you know as you've described it's actually it's very powerful to say that and Mm. you know I have that sort of experience of work as well where people do tend to respect you more I think when you are able Mm. to say that and and it's not Mm. about saying I don't know and just shutting down the conversation is it it's saying I don't I don't know however I can I know someone who does or however you know I can actually go and find that out um and sort of problem solving yeah and I work quite closely with parents and often their their needs and their the things they want you to support with go beyond your professional remit so it's not unusual for me to be in a meeting with a parent and they'll start talking about toileting and I'm like this isn't my area of expertise however I know some people that are really really good at this and I can um, ask them to give you a call or I can send you an email with their email address or whatever and I've never ever had a parent go why don't you know about this da, 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 da. like as long as you explain um this isn't my area or even within speech and language therapy if someone's like um oh I think my child has a speech sound disorder they've been diagnosed with um I don't know dyspraxia and I'm sat there thinking I really don't think this child has dyspraxia but I don't want to undermine another speech and language therapist because it's, it's common in my field for private therapists to make diagnoses that um stick and they're not always correct shall I say (laughs) or they're a little bit based on like a really small snapshot and they haven't spent so much time with the child Mm -hmm. um but I wouldn't go oh no that's completely wrong I'm right I would just go okay well in my experience blah 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 but let me you know contact the therapist talk it through and I'll get back to you I try and as long as I think you explain your reasoning for not having an answer, um, most people appreciate that more. Mm. And I think it, in my experience, it's those parents then 
are more likely to come back and ask me questions because they know um, I will find the answer, even mm-hmm. if it takes longer. But I'm not just going to dismiss that or just give them some random, I don't know, textbook thing that I don't really understand. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something that um, I'm interested in is you talked about um, – well, actually, yeah, I suppose with COVID, as we all know, things are quite challenging at the moment. And mm. I'm sure in your role, um, particularly working with with children with autism, you know, there can be quite a high emotional load at times, depending on what you're doing. Mm. So something I'm curious about is how you or you, what's your experience emotionally of the work you do? And, and also, um, given that you manage other junior staff, mm. um, how you reflect on that with them or to what extent that is discussed and there is a conversation around that with the staff? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we discuss it quite a lot actually. Um, and I've had to manage quite a lot of people that are completely new to the profession. So, in speech and language therapy, we have something called um, like your band five competencies, which is like the set of competencies you have to go through within your first year to 18 months to be a fully registered professional. So it's quite a heavily regulated profession. Um, and I've had to support quite a few people through those. And I think a big part of that is discussing um, that emotional component of, of the role um, because a lot of people can write a report, but can they communicate what's in that report to a parent? That's to me is a much more powerful skill. And that comes with a, a totally different emotional demand because we're often, we're often the first professional parent sees because speech and language is like, Oh, my child's not talking at two. I'm going to contact a speech and language therapist, right? That's what you do. So mm. especially with autism, um, one of the first things parents often notice is the lack of speech and language. Um, so we, we are quite commonly the ones that will refer on to autism diagnosis. We're also often commonly the ones that have to be the first to say, we think your child may be autistic, right? Which for most parents is, absolutely terrifying and comes with you know every emotion imaginable um some you know and everything from devastation to relief because some know and they've been fighting for the diagnosis and haven't been able to get it but um in terms of how how we how i kind of support people with that is i always just say to them if you if you are doing what you genuinely think is right for that child and you're saying what you think is the right thing based on your knowledge and your experience, then you can't really go wrong. As in, don't, don't say something to someone that just because you know they want to hear it because eventually that's going to unravel. The amount of professionals, I think, that just brush over things and say, um, what parents want to hear and then five, ten years later, parents having to pick up the pieces from that, I think that is far more harmful. And although it's upsetting and the parent might cry and you, you know, are struggling with that yourself, you have done the right thing by that child. And yeah, you can come away from that. You can, you know, go in the office, have a good cry, have a cup of tea, whatever you need to do to 
you know, de-stress from that meeting, but you have done the right thing. And although you've made that parent cry, it's not you that's done that. It's the situation. It's they're grieving for the child they thought they were going to have. Mm. And, and, and constantly when you work in the field um, of autism, parents are grieving for that child at different stages. So, you know, they may have a four-year-old and they're grieving because they've, they've sort of come to terms with the diagnosis or an 11-year-old and they're still not toilet trained a 16 year old and they're realizing they're never going to have a job. You know, there's different life stages or the 18 year old that's got conversational language, but can't make any friends and has never had a birthday party. You know, for parents, that's tough and we can't ever underestimate that. And I think as professionals, we have to be empathetic Mm -hmm. and sometimes you just have to sit and listen. And the amount of times I've gone into a meeting and I've got on my, my notepad okay, these are things I need to discuss. And I've left the meeting. I haven't discussed a single thing I, I needed to discuss. But the parent has had a good cry and they've had a good just outlet of all their frustrations. And they, they usually leave feeling better. Now, I may leave feeling worse, but I'm not the one that has to go home to that child. Mm. So that's how I kind of see it. Um, we do it as a job they that's their life so I kind of put it in perspective that way and I think if you can kind of find a way to almost yeah again it's for me so much is is perspective it's I'm having a really really rubbish day you know behavior is really challenging in in the line of work I do People were shocked, you know, at some of the behaviours of it, you know, being bitten, scratched, but any, anything you can imagine as I've had happen to me. But I don't go home and stress about, oh, this child hurt me today. I think, oh, God, what is the parent dealing with <laughs> at home? Mm-hmm. Because for me, that's, it might have hurt and it might have been a shock, but I don't have to live with that. So for me, it's all about... Um, putting it in that bigger picture and I think when I support newer professionals to that I you can tell early on if they're going to cope some some people it's just not for them and that is absolutely fine and I will say look if this isn't for you I will not judge you I will support you to kind of go into a different specialist and that is absolutely fine because it isn't for everyone and it really really isn't and I would much rather someone be honest and I'll support them to to go into like a, a different area or maybe they'd be better off with the more kind of languagey kids or the speech kids in a clinic or a language unit because that's a totally different job. You know, my job is crawling around the floor, <laughs> trying to get a child to communicate with a symbol, yeah. probably covered in foam, glitter. <laughs> like that's my job. You know, if that's not for everyone. It's not glamorous. It is mm. not glamorous. It really, really isn't the amount of hours of my life I've spent in toilets, I've not intended to go in one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, you, you've got to have a sense of humor. You've got to be able to. So to a certain extent, I think you can learn, t- if you like strategies to manage the emotional side, but also to a certain extent, you've got to be a certain kind of person. You right. can't take yourself too seriously. You really mm-hmm. can't. You've got to, 
got to be able to see the funny side in ridiculous situations. Like I'm talking absolutely ridiculous. Um, and you just, I, I think you've got to be able to, you can't blame anything ever on the young person or the child. It's never their fault. It is yeah. never, ever, ever. And all the experiences I've had in my career, which have made me get upset, have never been caused by a child. They've always been caused by other members of staff. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, always, it's always frustration with my colleagues. It's never frustration at the child because at the end of the day, that's why we're there, right? If they could, if they didn't have those problems, we wouldn't be there. So yeah. Um, as you're talking, I, I, it's making me think about how the sort of the work that I've done, um, also working um, with people with autism, but also just with other other different clients, and how it sort of shapes and changes my perspective on the world. And I think how that has evolved over the years of working with different mm. types of people. I'm interested. Um, you've mentioned that idea about perspective changing a little mm. bit, but how would you mm. say the work you, you do, um, it has changed your perspective on the world, the way you see things? Oh, absolutely massively, because I think um, I just, I don't get phased by things as much as I think probably an average person does, as in I'm, if you like, I've had years of experience of staying very, very calm in high stress situations so mm-hmm. um you know you can have a, a child trashing a classroom and i will just stand there and because i'm a big believer in sort of co-war mutual regulation i can't remember which way around the term is but if you're calm the child is going to get calmer much quicker mm. if you're going to go if you're going to react and be anxious the child is more likely to be anxious right so and I definitely think that has an impact on my personal life like I have nieces and nephews and I'll be in the high street and they're having a tantrum and I'm just like oh you know whatever like my 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 sister's like having a meltdown I think it's different when you're the parent as well obviously because you have a sense of kind of embarrassment in a way because you see that as a reflection on you as a parent but um things like that just don't phase me at all mm-hmm. because when you've taken kind of six autistic adults out in the community by yourself and one is like I've had situations because I used to work in London like one guy worked with shut down the district line for like an hour which is a London underground tube line <laughs> and like I was just there sort of okay so this is happening so when you've had situations like that and you've got a two-year-old in the supermarket having a tantrum. I'm like, that's fine. Like, in terms of his emotional development, that's where he's at, right? He wants to talk about he's not having to talk about he's going to have a tantrum. Does anyone really care? No. Like, I think I can just put it in perspective. And yeah, like, I've had I've had another example with children. It's like um, I've been sat in a cafe with um, my sister-in-law and my nephew's crying and she's stressing, and I'm just like, he's a baby. He cries. It's fine. It's any look around you, you care a lot more than anyone else. And I think, I think we, I think I'm totally desensitized to a lot of things now. And I don't know if that's a good thing because I'm not a parent myself yet. So I might just be the world's most laid back parent, like if I do have kids. So that might not be a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> I might just be a terrible parent. But I think it's just, 
I, yeah, and in terms of like greater things around the world, um, I think I'm very good at putting my sort of snapping myself out of it. So if I'm feeling a bit like low about something, I can just go, well, you know, with the whole pandemic, I was like, well, this is a bit rubbish. You know, I mm. can't do anything. I, it, you know, I could have spiraled, but I'm not. Instead, I just go, oh, but look at those people that are isolating in India in a slum. Like, that's a far worse situation. And I think I'm quite like that as a person anyway. I'm not one to self-indulge. I see, I mean, self-indulgence is not the right word because I know some people genuinely struggle with their mental health and I don't want to belittle that, but if I find myself having those thoughts, I'm quite good at just thinking, but this person is worse off than me. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's that whole like Yorkshire mentality, but it's very much like, just get on with it, Amanda. I'm like, just snap yourself out of it. Get on with it because there's someone that has it worse than you. Um, and I think because I'm so exposed to that work, yeah, like most, most families I work with have it a lot worse than me. So I'm like, well, why am I? sitting around what good is that going to do anyone you know I I expect that's quite common across you know most people working in the helping Mm. professions is it gives you that sense of perspective doesn't it I find that as Mm. well I I just find myself being grateful you know Mm. for for the things I have when I come home from a you know a hard day of working with people who are much more disadvantaged than I am and um it's you know whilst I think we you know, we should allow ourselves to, you know, if we have something genuinely going on in our lives, like mm. you know, we're allowed to be upset as well, right? Like it doesn't, yeah, doesn't it doesn't mean that we can't ever be upset or sad or angry or whatever mm. about something going on in our life. But uh, I'm 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 with you on the fact that it's um, it helps you to reframe mm. things, doesn't it? Like you know, minor annoyances or whatever, you can yeah um, remind yourself of some of the things that your clients or families are, are going through. Exactly. But I think the downside of that is like with me, I live with someone that isn't in that profession. Mm. And I find that I do not have much tolerance for people that aren't the same. So I can, I can be really annoying because something genuinely bad might be happening to my husband. And I'm just, I'm like, well, it can't be as bad as this. And he hates that because he sees that as me dismissing his problem so I think it's fine if you are surrounded by people that work in similar professions but if you're not you can be seen as almost a bit too kind of dismissive maybe (laughs) which I have a problem with I think because no one in no one in my family works in my profession either Mm -hmm. I'm the I'm the only one in my immediate circle except some friends that do anything like what I do so I think it it's okay if you're surrounded by similar people but sometimes I can be a little bit too oh well your problem can't be that bad (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure they love you when they're telling you about you know their pet dying or something you're like well you know that's that's nothing compared (laughs) to I know I have to like honestly I have to sort of go no this is a big thing for them and yeah like try and empathize more yeah but yeah you do get desensitized I think yeah definitely um something I want to come back to was um Mm. you're talking about actually 
one of the, the biggest kind of uh, maybe emotional challenges and challenges at work is not not so much necessarily the clients or the students whoever you're working mm. with it's other staff um yeah and, and obviously um you know you do a lot of team working um mm. so i'm interested in what what are some of the like unhelpful um behaviors that you experience or maybe maybe you have demonstrated yourself at times yeah um that you know can make teams not function particularly well and maybe um if you can talk a little bit about maybe just some um problematic cultures that you've been been sort of you've witnessed Mm. Mm. yeah I mean I've worked primarily in schools and if you've not worked in schools they're very very unique places and the politics within schools is unlike a lot of workplaces I think because you have um kind of groups within groups it's sort of um it's it's a, it's interesting but it can be really really challenging because each school has its own culture and that usually comes from the top down in my experience so whichever culture the head teacher sets out so if that head teacher is like oh our number one focus is emotional well-being that kind of trickles down but if you've got a head teacher that their number one focus is academics that will also have a big effect and that's generally what the teachers are measured on right so whatever the head teacher is like this is our focus the head teachers have to do that because they're out measured on that so as a professional working within that, whether you're working for the school or on a consultative basis, whichever school you go in you, is a unique experience. And it's always helpful to know what the culture of the school is beforehand, but often you have no idea and you just go in. But I've been met with everything from staff that are just so pleased that I'm there, that they just hang off every word I say, to people that don't have two minutes to talk with me because they don't think that I've got a single useful thing to say Mm. that could possibly benefit them so and I think so much of that is is about the culture of the school and I've worked in all all different kinds of models so when I worked in a speech and language school um they had a therapist per class which is like really unique model of working so I did a lot of co-teaching with the teacher and I only had a caseload of like 15 kids, which was insane. Um, and I knew the parents really well. I knew the kids really well. And that was a, a great model, but also not a realistic model because it's a very expensive model of working. Um, and more recently, um, when I was head of therapy of a autism school, I had to do a lot of work on kind of promoting our role within the school because there was a lot of, us writing reports and targets and all kinds of things and then it just not being done um and I think that's really really common you know if and I'm sure lots of professionals that kind of do that sort of work are get really frustrated because you can spend ages assessing a child and writing this lovely set of targets and even providing the resources and modeling the resources that doesn't mean it's going to be done And one of the big issues I had in that setting was um, empowering, if you like, the teaching staff and the uh, teaching assistant staff to follow through on our recommendations because initially it seemed as 
or they didn't think it was worth it. But underneath that, I think, was that they didn't really understand it. But but a huge challenge in itself because you're constantly training. Staff turnover is usually a very big problem in special schools, very Mm. big problem. I've never worked in a special school where the staff turnover is stable. You know, you just about train a group of staff and then they leave. It's, it's tough. Um, so I think in terms of the biggest challenge, it's just getting your recommendations into the child's learning. In a lot of the things we know need to happen need to be happening daily. So if you're training a child in a new method of communication, if you're not using that all the time and modeling that consistently, they're not going to learn to use that and the amount of times where I've implemented something so I've said okay let's trial um, assistive technology uh, blah 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 modeled it got the device literally gone in there modeled it show them how to use it show them how to program it and then I come back and it's in a drawer and it's not even charged and you just want to tear your hair out because that's <laughs> that child's voice and I'm yeah. like how is that child going to talk and they're like oh well, we tried it and you can't use it and like he needs to be taught to use it. So it's things like that. It's, it's a, a big challenge. And I, I always have to remind myself that it's not, it's not that they don't want that child to talk. It's not that they don't want those outcomes. It's, it's that they don't either don't understand what you're asking them to do or there's a culture within that school that is stopping them from doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's nearly always one of those two things. Um, when it's a cultural issue, that is a big barrier because you have to go from the top down. You have to really get on, get the head teacher and the senior leadership team on your side. And often that takes a long time. You're on picking, if you like, years of institutional behavior in that they're, they've been doing it a certain way for years. And you're coming in going, hang on a minute, this isn't working. And they don't like that because that's yeah. your criticism. Their, you're criticizing their leadership. You're criticizing their school, and often that's their life's work, right? So um, it's not easy. It's not easy. And um, again, that's why I think you you develop quite a thick skin because you can literally spend years on something, and then it doesn't mean that's always going to have that trickle down effect for the children. Yeah. That and, kind of disappointment the, yeah. <laughs> after, after the hard work. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I've done is I suppose I've gone into more of a managerial role is I, if I can see that there's a problem like that, I try and write it into policy. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they hate me because I'll be like, okay, so there's a problem here with using communication aids let's write a communication policy and I'll basically write it as in like, this is best practice. Here's the research for the best practice. And then it will go through governors, blah, blah, blah. And then the next time someone comes to me and oh, this child still isn't using their aid. And I'm like, okay, well, have you followed all the procedures in the policy? And they're like, Ooh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like a really slow route of getting there, but eventually over time, they have to because it's gotta, the, gotta policy the policies. Of the school. <laughs> yeah. Everyone loves a, everyone loves a good policy. 
yeah but it's it's so frustrating because it'd be a lot easier if i didn't have to do that but yeah yeah <laughs> um i've really appreciated your time today amanda and it's gonna um ask a couple more questions before we finish um no that's fine first i'm interested mm. um where do you think you'll be in five or ten years or what's your what's your dream what what's the vision until this Mm. point you said you've had quite a you know clear vision of where you Mm. wanted to get to what what do you want things to look like in let's just say five years time um and what do you really hope to achieve for your profession in the longer run um wow that's a big question i mean in terms of five years time so i've just started in my role fairly recently um so the um local authority that i'm sort of working with really needs a lot of support to outline that if you like their speech and language autism pathway so that is in my immediate timeline i want to get that sorted maybe within the next year um I would have done it a lot sooner, but I'm having, I've gone from working within quite a small team to a very large team. So everything takes 10 times longer because you've got to have meetings on meetings on meetings. Mm-hmm. But essentially I want to lay out a really clear universal targeted and specialist model of working within, with autism in this field. That's my immediate goal. Um, and then I think I want to, I suppose, develop, myself a little bit more in terms of management skills maybe long term I've always liked the idea of um going back into academics a little bit I don't I I did think of like maybe doing a PhD but I actually don't know if I want to do that now (laughs) so (laughs) it just seems like a lot of work but um (laughs) I don't know I would never say never I'm I'm open-minded I never say never to anything so like maybe go back to uni I like the idea of maybe teaching at uni one day just part-time I would never want to give up my clinical practice yeah and there's also I just want to develop the whole field of speech and language therapy within autism I think there's massive gaps massive gaps there really are like where autism Uh, meets mental health you know the amount Mm. of children I work with that have crushing mental health difficulties but can't get access to mental health services because they have autism it's insane and I really do think there's a niche within my profession to help with that um, or to work closely with mental health professionals to develop that so they're just some ideas but yeah I mean I'm still quite new in in my role and um i haven't really got fully stuck in because of the pandemic i've been working from home so it's actually in two weeks ish will be the first time i ever go in one of my main schools i've never been there (laughs) yeah so i'm talking yeah a bit ambitiously here but yeah it sounds like you've got some really lovely ideas of Mm. where things could go things that you you know you would like to work on and you know, what an inspiration to, to younger people um, joining your profession. I suppose just to finish off the last question for you is mm. what what kind of advice would you give, um, I suppose, newly qualified speech and language therapists um, who are, you know, ambitious and they would like to um, 
make a mark on the world in your profession and um mm. you know enter positions of leadership and it's quite difficult to sort of you know mm. summarize everything but what's the main piece of advice you'd give those people um i think in terms of advice just don't limit yourself you know don't don't think oh i i'm only good at this so i'm only going to do this like you can always learn find good teachers and I don't mean like they have to be actual teachers I mean people within your profession that you look up to learn from them ask them questions listen um don't assume you know it because you probably don't no offense because I didn't um and just absorb just absorb as much as you can learn as much as you can keep an open mind and um always keep the client in the center of whatever you do because then you can't go wrong if if the decisions you're making are genuinely in the interest of that client and it goes really badly wrong and you know you leave a situation and you're like oh that was awful at least you've done the right thing for that client um if you start going down a path of doing what you think other professionals or other people think you want to do that's when you're going to end up in kind of a difficult position because you're compromising your own professional code of conduct. So Mm. stick, stick with that, stick to your principles, keep the client in the middle and keep, just keep learning. Yeah. Sounds like some really, really sound (laughs) advice. (laughs) Amanda, thank you very much again for your time. No, you're welcome. And um, yeah, good luck with your your new role when you actually get to get out there and see some people in in person. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode number one of Beneath the Armour podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amanda. I very much enjoyed catching up with her and having this discussion. Making this podcast and, and that episode in particular has made me learn lots of things about the the skills involved and necessary to go from having an idea about something like a podcast and actually bringing it to life and what you're actually hearing now. Lots of hours have been spent having to learn ways of editing sound files and creating the images and all of the content and everything that's necessary to to bring you this. So I hope you've enjoyed it and I've got several more conversations lined up already. So the podcast is going to be released every two weeks and the next guest will be another good friend of mine, Liam Mason. Liam is a clinical psychologist and also a researcher working in the UK and we have a really great conversation about the challenges of getting into research when you're a clinician and just some other really interesting general conversation about leadership and the way in which as um, more senior psychologists we interact with and help foster the development of our, our junior colleagues. So please don't forget to subscribe if you like this episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and you can also head over to my website nathanillman.com and you will find a link there and you can sign up to my newsletter in which you can get some updates related to the podcast including news about guests and some additional features and things. Bye for now and enjoy the rest of your day.